1: Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and today I've got a very special program. It stars the founder of Kogan, Ruslan Kogan. This has been a spectacular business success story, and Ruslan shares the secrets of his retail success, and he actually shocks me with his view on Jerry Harvey. You'll be very surprised to hear what he has to say. And then we talk to Dr. Ali Walker, who explains to me what exactly mindfulness is She explains why high achievers practice it, why I find it so damn hard to do, and I think she makes it very, very interesting. I I must admit, I I just couldn't stop talking to the girl. She was just so interesting. So let's kick off and catch up with Ruslan Kogan. So I'm joined by Ruslan Kogan, who some people have described as a serial entrepreneur. I've known him for a long time. I think I remember him coming on my Sky Business program wearing a t-shirt with a Big dream. I guess you're still wearing a T-shirt knowing you, Russell. Welcome to the program.
2: I am. I'm certainly still in a T-shirt, a Jordan T-shirt at the moment.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, you certainly have been flying through the air with your business. For people who don't know much about the origins, um, and, and I do because, you know, we, we have talked about when you, when you first kicked off, what was the origins of Kogan? Where did you see the opportunity and how did you get it off the ground so the
2: business started early in 2006 and uh, it was I was in a corporate job earning decent money wanting to always buy the latest tech and uh, you know being a computer geek from a, from a young age and always wanted the latest gadgets and I went to buy a big screen TV. They were really expensive in all the stores. And uh, I thought, well, let me try and import one out of Asia, which is where they're made. And then I saw this opportunity where a product that I could land in Australia for around $1,000 was selling in the big name stores for about $4,000 at the time. And then I thought back to... Uh, a semester that I did studying abroad in the US and the rise of online retail there, and I thought this is a perfect product for e-commerce. This is a perfect product for uh, you know delivering uh, around the country because you've got you've got this uh, product that's worth a lot of money in a fairly small box, and you can quite easily uh, get it deliver to customers, so Kogan.com was born at that time with a direct-to-consumer online business model with uh, with just uh, two products at the time.
1: Okay, so how hard was it for a, you know, a bloke in Melbourne uh, who thought, I'd like to create effectively Kogan TVs um, and source them in China? and get them over here, and we won't worry about the actual retailing of it now, but just to actually get access to a whole bunch of TVs and having your name Kogan stamped on it, how hard was that?
2: Well, there were a lot of challenges from very early on in the business, So even from placing the order with the initial uh, factory. So I'd researched all of these factories, chosen the best one to work with, And when I went to place an order, they told me that they're not interested in my order because it was too small. I only wanted to order 80 TVs at the time, and they had to set up a production run for it. And... Uh, you know, they're more interested in orders of the tens or hundreds of thousands of units. So, you know, it was challenging from that point. I, I actually ended up redoing all of their user manuals, redoing all of their marketing material and sending it back to that factory and saying, hey, look, you might not make a lot of money from this small order that I want to place, but uh, there's other ways in which I can add value to this relationship. And I showed them all the work that I did for them. They said, thank you very much, gave me an even better price and accepted my small order. Yeah. Then there are other challenges like funding and finance. So speaking to a few business leaders who, who weren't interested, they told me online retailers for books and CDs and no one's ever going to buy a TV without seeing it first. So I actually went and got a few credit cards and convinced a few friends to get credit cards and lend me the money and then uh, went and pre-sold a few TVs to fund the business. So Kogan.com actually started with $0 in the bank account.
1: And, and so what was the price differential you took to market? Like to to get some friends to stump up money for TVs that you know you said you were going to deliver, what was the price differential?
2: Yeah, well, look, a lot of these friends had seen me um, and how I operate from a very young age, so they were happy to hand the money over. But uh, the differential was actually not fixed because one of the other quirky things I did when I started the business was I sold the TVs at one cent no reserve on eBay because my view was that as long as there's two people in Australia who want an LCD TV, it'll get the natural market price. Mm -hmm. And it actually caused a bit of a stir because I did this because all these places were saying, look, there's this guy selling TVs from one cent Mo Reserve. If you bid $1 and you're the highest bidder, you'll actually get to take home a 40-inch LCD TV. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter was that it's a very deep market. There's a lot of demand and every single TV had hundreds of bids and generating a lot of attention for the brand and for the method. And uh, I was... I was getting very good prices for
1: the TV. Yeah, now, Ruslan, uh, I, you know, considering that it was probably at least 10 years ago we first did an interview, I can't remember, but I think even at that time you had someone who you had either in-house or you hired who was a PR person because PR has been a really important part of your success story, hasn't it?
2: Well, I realized very early on with the company that uh, – you know, getting attention for a brand is critical and we are a a challenger brand, we're a fighter brand and we need to be out there telling our story because we were competing in some of the most competitive industries out there. We were in consumer electronics, we were making LCD TVs and we were in retail. These are cutthroat industries where I was competing with lots of companies with very deep pockets. So, uh, I realized from very early on in the business that in the same way that I need to get attention for this brand, journalists need content. And, uh, you know, we're able to, like every other relationship in the business, create a win-win where we were exchanging content for attention. And, uh, and it was working and it was exactly what we needed to do at that stage of the business.
1: Okay, so w- one of the, the, the greatest exponents of what you have done uh, was, of course, John Simon and Aussie Home Loans. Um, and I can remember the very first time we received a fax to the Triple M newsroom in the early 1990s a Facts came through about this unknown business called Aussie Home Loans that was offering home loans 2% cheaper than everybody else. And I remember the news director, David White, said to me, because I was their business and finance commentator, they said, So it's, you know, should we actually give this business any, you know, publicity? Because, you know, 2% cheaper interest rates, you know, there was no competition in those days. And I said, Well, he's giving people money, he's not taking their money. So at the very worst, if he goes broke, Someone will end up back in, a, a, you know, Commonwealth Bank or Westpac. They'll buy his book, so I guess it's not a risky thing. But he certainly learned how to, you know, tap into the media. Did you learn from some of the legends of business uh, yourself when you started, you know, setting out the, the goal of growing Kogan?
2: Well, it was, uh, it was actually not a legend of business. It was some rap music that I had listened to. Uh, in high school and in college, it was from Eminem, <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: where I remember, you know, listening to uh, a lot of Eminem songs, and he was uploading these disses that he had with a guy called Ja Rule. And, you know, Ja Rule would upload something saying something bad about Eminem, then Eminem would respond, then yeah. Ja Rule would respond. It's a real battle, was not it? Yeah. Yeah, they had this battle going on. And then I remember Eminem ending the battle by saying, I'm not going to respond anymore because I've sold you more records than you could ever sell yourself. <laughs> so, uh, he, he did that. And I thought, you know what? That's true. I'd never heard of Jarul before all of this. And then in the very early days of the business, I actually, uh, I thought, well, every challenger brand needs to have an enemy and we need to tell our story. And I was uh, filming a Today Tonight uh, episode about our TV. And whenever the uh, cameras was, were off, I was telling them, I was like, well, if Jerry Harvey saw these prices, he would go nuts. If you showed these to him, oh, my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I I'm, watch- I'm watching that episode later that night. And they did find Jerry. And they showed him the prices, and here he was standing in the middle of one of his stores, half-shaking, saying, oh, they're not that much cheaper than ours. They're only a couple of hundred bucks cheaper on this one. Um, And it was perfect, Todd. Um, you know, he's a business person that I respect a lot, and as any retailer in Australia, would, he's transformed the retail landscape and he's achieved so much. Yeah. But yeah, I did learn a trick or two off Eminem and used it on Jerry.
1: Have you ever sent him a Christmas card thanking him for his um, support?
2: No, not yet. We've still got a long way to go. You know, it's, uh, oh. even even with all of our growth and what we've achieved. It's still tiny in comparison to what some of the amazing retailers in Australia, like Jerry Harvey, have achieved. We are we are a business that is uh, a few percent of online retail in Australia, and online retail is. About eight or nine percent of overall retail. So we're roughly 0.3 percent of overall retail in Australia. So while we think we'll get much bigger as more retail shifts to online and we'll gain market share online because we're very good at what we do in that space, you know, what we have achieved so far still pales in comparison to what some of our great retailers over the last few decades have achieved.
1: Well, Russland, I'm surprised you've given me a headline. Russland Kogan Ad Myers, Jerry Harvey. That's going to be a a very good headline. (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh, Numbers speak for themselves. So, (laughs) you know, you can't. You can't dispute that.
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I, I know Jerry is smart enough to realise you were using him to to get the attention, but the reality is you, you've, you have actually delivered on your promise, and the share price is reflecting that as well. Uh, along the way, you, you have cop criticism. You have copped uh, people saying, oh, they'll never do it and whatever. What was it like? Because there, there are times when the share price hasn't you know, made you feel fantastic. How have you got through those tough times, Russell?
0: Well,
2: a lot of that drives us because we are in a very competitive space and what we do is watched by a lot of people. And no matter what we do, uh, there'll be critics. You know, if we make a lot of money, there'll be someone saying that, oh, why didn't they reinvest more in growth? If you reinvest in growth and make a little bit less money, someone will be saying, oh, why didn't they make enough money? Uh, no matter what you do as a public company, you're always going to have critics, and that's part and parcel. We love that. We love the debate. We love the scrutiny. And we love the fact that we're in such competitive industries that makes us jump out of bed in the morning. So look, it's not for everyone. You've got to ensure that that sort of stuff drives you and, you know, that you can live with the distractions and you know how to put your blinkers on and be focused on what's important and how to deliver value for your customers. Uh, But, you know, it's all part of the game.
1: All right. So one of the things I was surprised at, uh, which you've, done very well is that you've introduced innovation, which n- not necessarily is actually selling products. Um, how has that gone in terms of driving their revenue and explaining the success of the share price?
2: Well, the share price is something we try not to look at. Yeah, because... I know.
1: That makes you sound like a conventional CEO. But the reality is it's always nice if it's heading the right direction.
2: Oh, and that's our job. Our job is to deliver long-term shareholder value. But, um, you know, a lot of the times, the thing with a share price is when a share price moves, it's nothing to do with the work you did in the prior week or month. It's Mm. due to work that happened several years ago in a business. So we've been focused on ensuring that we execute our long-term strategy, that we've got a very, uh, strong attention to the various risks across the business and, you know, mitigating risks where we can, creating diversified revenue streams, creating, uh, you know, a supply chain that uh, isn't too concentrated in any one area and uh, is also a diverse supply chain. And that's been critical to the success of our business. So even if you look at uh, the last few months, we achieved what we achieved with one hand tied behind our back because there was a lot of disruptions out of China when it came to products because after the Chinese New Year, many factories didn't come back to work for one to two months uh, due to coronavirus. In our supply chain, we've obviously got our private label products where we control the supply chain end-to-end. We work with third-party brands, but then we've also got Marketplace where we allow sellers to sell through our platform. Now, in in the disruptive environment that we've had, it means that if any products were missing out of uh, any of those divisions or any of those categories, they might be missing from one of our supply chains, but the other two would have it. So, you know, concentrating on this innovation and ensuring that we're building a supply chain from scratch since 2006 rather than operating a supply chain the way they've operated for decades has been very important to our business.
0: Mm.
1: But look, the thing is, you know, you're going to have to pick me up on here. I haven't done enough research, which annoys me when I think about it. But you got into things like um, telephone plans and stuff like that, haven't you? And, my question, when I saw you get into those sorts of different things, and correct me if you're not in that, but you're in some unusual things, not just selling products. And I thought to myself, he must be leveraging off the fact he's got a loyal tribe of followers who have benefited from hanging out with Kogan and Kogan.com. And therefore, he thinks, well, if people trust me to sell TVs, well, they'll trust me to sell other things. Is that true? Is that how it's worked out?
2: You're 100% spot on. So our thinking with our new verticals, and we've got them now across lots of industries. So we do have Kogan Mobile, as you point out, Mm -hmm. where uh, we've partnered with Vodafone to sell mobile plans. We also sell NBN Internet uh, in a partnership with Vodafone. We've got home insurance, content insurance, car insurance, Kogan credit cards we have now as well in a partnership with Citibank. Um, And, you know, we've got lots of other verticals as well. And our thinking there is that we've got this huge stream of traffic, a recognized and trusted brand online. And uh, there's a lot of service providers and infrastructure owners out there that uh, want customer acquisition and they've built out their service or they've built out their infrastructure and they need to onboard customers to help them pay off their assets. And marketing and customer acquisition in these industries is very expensive. So we partner with them and we say, look, acquiring customers for you is very expensive. You want to grow your customer base. We have this huge customer base and stream of traffic on our site that trust our brand. Let's partner. But rather than spend money on marketing, Let's reinvest that money into the price point of the product so we can ensure that we've got the cheapest mobile plans or internet connection or home insurance or travel insurance out there. Mm. And it's a win-win-win for everyone. It's a win for our customers. They get an incredible deal. A win for our partners because they get to acquire lots of customers and a win for our shareholders as well. So that's how we've structured those divisions.
1: Yeah, and I guess the bottom line is you have to make sure you patrol – the, um, the, the the new entry onto your platform to make sure they don't betray your brand.
2: Yeah, so that's a that's the biggest risk with that business model. Our brand is on the line, so as far as the customer's concerned, their Kogan mobile network has to work and their Kogan internet has to work. So we have a very strict set of SLAs and service requirements with our providers to ensure that while they've done the underlying service, that our customers are treated very well.
1: What's what's the future? What are you going to be getting into going forward?
2: Well, you know, we sort of we got a good look at the future recently where e-commerce accelerated A few years within the space of a few months. And I think that that's a trend that we're going to see. And there's going to be a lot of competition out there for who can serve e-commerce customers better. Because what we're seeing now is traditionally the online customer used to be the price hunter. They were the customer who looked around, saw a product somewhere for 80 bucks, somewhere else for 88, found a place they've never heard of that had it for 87. And they'd buy it from that place because it's the cheapest price. Now we're seeing the rise of the convenience customer. And that's the mass market in e-commerce. There's are people that don't really care if it's $85, $87 or $90. They just want to click a few times, have a beautiful experience online, and have it arrive at their door the next day. Mm. So there's a lot of investment we're doing in building out our logistics network. We now have 15 distribution centers. We have items located closer to the customer all over Australia. That in turn speeds up our delivery to the customer but also makes it cheaper. And uh, you know, these sort of investments into the uh, e-commerce ecosystem that will improve the customer experience and make life better for the convenient customer. That's going to be the where the battle is won over the next five to 10 years.
1: And so in, in many ways, you're a real head-to-head fighter, competitor with Amazon Prime.
2: Well yeah Amazon is a is a marketplace business uh, that you know launched a few years ago the big player in that space is eBay. Mm. What a lot of people don't realize is that eBay's been doing an incredible job in Australia. Mm. They are they are doing so well and part of the reason is that in the US eBay is seen as uh the place you go to sell your second-hand iPhone. Whereas in Australia, eBay for 25 years has been the go-to marketplace for brand new buy-it-now items, with lots of the major retailers around the country uh, listing on their platform. So, uh, in our view, we you know really look up to eBay, and and uh, you know they've done a lot of good things. And yes, there's going to be a lot of competition in this space, and the customers going to benefit.
1: How have you changed Kogan? Uh, yeah, when I first met you, you were. Uh... A smart ass, but likable young bloke with a big dream. Have you? Ch- <laughs> I say that the nicest possible way. You know that, but you were, you were, you were teasing Jerry Harvey and whatever. So it's a pretty fair fair call. Have you changed in any way?
2: Oh well, look, I've definitely have a bit less hair than when I last saw you, <laughs> and a few extra grey hairs. Right. Uh, so you know, business. The business world makes you learn very quickly and makes you adapt very quickly. So. Uh, certainly a lot of stuff hasn't changed. You know, my friends haven't changed and the things that I love doing haven't changed. Uh, but from a business environment, I'd like to think that I'm a better business person today than I was yesterday.
1: Yeah, you certainly have uh, matured. I can hear that. Finally, mate, the, the resources or the books or the inspirations that have you know, kept you, you know, heading in the right direction and has kept you committed, you know, when there were challenges along the way.
2: Yeah, I'd have to say my parents because they're the ones that have had the biggest impact on my life. They're the ones I know the most and seeing them arrive in Australia with $90 in their pocket in 1989, work three or four jobs each, uh, you know, studying English at the same time, never missing a parent teacher interview, uh, explaining the importance of education. Um, and, you know, making us study very hard, both me and my sister. Mm. They're the, they're the most inspirational things that, you know, a child can be exposed to. So seeing that work ethic and that determination from a young age, Mm. I think has taught me the best business skills, even though, you know, I don't really value my parents' business skills because they grew up in a communist society. So communism doesn't teach you too much about business. So, you know, it's those, really important life skills that enable me to work 100 hours a week, that enable me to always think outside the box and think, how can I solve this problem or what's the appropriate level of risk to be taking here and so on. So they taught me a lot of the most important things in life from first principles rather than from... Uh, theoretical business skills.
1: Yeah, well, I think the one line is that uh, really good businesses are generally run by very good people, and obviously your parents have been very good role models in that respect. And I've got to say to you, I, I wrote a, a story on the weekend uh, after listening some, to some old Zig Ziglar tapes, and uh, it made me think about uh, both Mark Burris and John Simon. When I asked them who were their inspirations, they both said their parents. So you know, you're in the You're in the same class as Boris and Simon when it comes to that kind of thing.
2: Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. They're the people that have the most impact over your nurturing and upbringing. And, you know, just even to take it one step further and you think about what does it take to run a business, uh, it's the same as what it takes to be an immigrant. And that's what I saw my parents go through in the in my formative years because Mm -hmm. you've got to drop everything you've got, take a massive risk, travel into the unknown and work your butt off for a potential benefit that might not even be there. And it's a
1: strange, um, strange strange world as well, isn't it, it, Russell? The business world is a strange world.
2: Well, definitely. It changes every day. Like even look at what's happened in the last few months. Mm. Uh, there was you know I'd be in conference calls or meetings with people going hey remember we met two weeks ago this like how much has changed since then Uh, it's a dynamic environment and that's why also you know what Charles Darwin said about evolution applies a lot in business where you know it's not the uh, strongest that survives more the most intelligent but the one most responsive to change so you've got to constantly watch what's going on around you if fully aware of the marketplace and day in, day out, be pursuing whatever creates a better experience for your customers because they're ultimately what's going to make your business.
1: Russell and Kagan, thanks for joining us on the Switzer show.
2: Great to chat. Thank you.
1: And that was Russell and Kagan. Isn't that a great story? And this is, I've, I've watched his uh, progress and performance for well over a decade and uh he certainly delivered on his promise. and There's a lot of lessons there for all of us, I think. Um, now, look, it's the time for an ad. And you know, as you know, I only ever advertise my products. Um, I've, you know, I've just realized I've never done an ad for anyone else but Switzer Products, which I, I guess I believe in Switzer Products. Um, and what I'd like to encourage you to think about is my latest book, Join the Rich Club. And we've got a special deal at the moment. Uh, John Bragg tells me we've got a 30% off. Uh, the price, so that would make it quick calculation. Yes, seventeen dollars forty-seven plus uh, postage and handling, and I reckon you get out of that under twenty bucks. we thought, or close to it. That's probably uh, John's making a bit of. A, he understand, He understands. They're posting tangible than I do. Uh, but the bottom line is, this is going to be, I think, a great investment in your economic and financial future. And if it's no good, if the book doesn't teach you anything, send it back and I'll send you back your dough. How's that sound? So that's join the rich club. Just go to switzerstore.com.au. I'm talking to Dr. Ali Walker, who um, I guess is an expert on who we are and uh, has actually devised a personality test, which I've done. And um, I'm going to see you know, via her who I actually am and what do I actually want to be. Ali, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show.
3: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> now, Ali, we should actually, let's just find out how you got yourself qualified enough to become a personality assessor? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Look, it was just sort of a meandering route. It wasn't a, a very a straight line. I don't think anyone sort of, is, when they're three or four years old decides that they want to be a personality assessor or profiler. No. Um, it started off actually, I studied the law at university and then I became a criminal lawyer at the director of public prosecutions in New South Wales. So I was a criminal prosecutor essentially my first job mm. and what I found in that role, obviously, you know, involving a lot of complex human behavior, but what I found was my, my genuine passion there was trying to understand why people were behaving like they were and trying to understand the system in which we were prosecuting them rather than just getting the job done and sending them off to jail. And that wow. didn't feel like a sort of, well, a positive enough uh, fruit for my efforts. You know, you, you do your job really well, send someone to jail, end of story, start again with a new trial. Mm. And what was also interesting in that dynamic was that being young and female, a lot of the uh, victims that I was working with on sexual assault and child sexual assault cases were also young and female. So I was allocated to those cases because uh, the idea was that we didn't want to re-traumatize them. Mm. And they sort of saw me as, as someone who would be a, an approachable, accessible solicitor So I was turning up to work each Monday with these cases and I was finding myself without the social and emotional understanding around what I was being exposed to. I was then finding these emotional responses in myself. I was getting that vicarious trauma response. And so I just got to the point where I thought, I don't belong here, and went off on this completely different tangent and became really interested in human behavior. So I went back to university. I also went and studied integral coaching, which at the time wasn't offered at university. I studied that with a clinical psychologist in a uh, an applied learning center called the Earth Institute at the time. Mm. And... At the same time, I was doing my masters, so I was studying coaching on the one hand, doing a masters in understanding um, how groups behaved, and that culminated in a PhD in group dynamics. So after the PhD, that's when I started thinking, well, I've done this PhD in group dynamics. How, why do we all behave so differently in groups? That mm. became my real focus area. So you know, from the dining room table growing up, you know that I'm one of five children. And yes. I, I learned so much about group dynamics just from that experience. And then we go into. And the they're all big personalities,
1: room. aren't they? From your father, yeah. Dr. <laughs> Ross Walker, who a lot of people on Switzerland Show know, to your mother, who's even a bigger personality in her own right, <laughs> and then your brothers and sisters. Yeah? yeah. It was a great foundation for that kind of thing. Yep.
3: Yeah. So there's seven of us in, in my my family of origin where I started. And so, so much of my interest in group dynamics, I think started right then you know and then you go into classrooms and playgrounds and universities and social groups and sports teams and it's just these same patterns repeated over and over again and mm. I, I just have this voracious appetite for understanding how we are in groups and so that is what led me to become a personality profiler <laughs> um, it was kind of by accident I'm right. not by design I didn't set out to do that at all but mm. here I am here we so, are.
1: so who who was the the outstanding character, because like, uh, how how your father accepted that you went to something called the Earth Institute that is so politically so far away from what your father's like. Um, mm. Yeah, but ob- obviously the Earth Institute had, as you said, someone there about. Was it clinical coaching? You said
3: by a clinical psychologist, yeah, okay. was facilitating. Yeah, so the idea of it, its now actually called the Awareness Institute. So it was yeah. sort of seen as a coaching institute to teach these sorts of courses that weren't being offered by the traditional universities. Mm. And interestingly, you can now study coaching, a Master's of Coaching Psychology at the University of Sydney. But I think that's probably the only offering in Australia to date, even though coaching is such a growing field. Okay. It's so interesting. There's this whole field of psychology that began with, they call it abnormal psychology. So why are you suffering? That's where psychology came from, to understand mental illness. And from about the 60s and 70s onwards, new questions started being asked around, well, how can we flourish? I don't want to just not be upset or not be mentally ill. I actually want to be the the healthiest I can be. I want to be able to flourish. I want to uh, pursue happiness. And so different questions started being asked. You know, if there's a, a role for a psychiatrist and a psychologist to sit with people in their psychological suffering which is you know a, the most valuable thing i think we can do we also need to have a role for people to sit with people just just as a triathlete would have a coach to help mm. them be the best triathlete they can be why not have a coach to help you be the best ceo you can be or help you be the best mother you can be or help you be the best educator yeah. whatever it is i think we all need to be constantly learning and improving in our lives
1: yeah and it seems to me ali that See, because, you know, I was at the University of New South Wales in the 70s when it was easier to be, you know, left inclined and all these sorts of things were coming through, like a, a place like the Earth Institute would have been probably created in the 70s because that's where the, the headset was. But progressively, all the things you're talking about have become mainstream, like, you know, um, people are, in business, do meditation. Once upon a time, you know, TM was the domain of university students. You know, in the eastern mm. suburbs of Sydney, and I guess mm-hmm. in the, you know, um, the St Kilda areas of Melbourne places like that. But it's become very mainstream because people like you realize that people need coaches in their normal life to get through all the challenges of life. And mm. one thing I. I I discovered you were linked to is something called mindfulness, which I, I want mm. you to talk about. I want you to finish up on personality because you've you've assessed my personality. But mindfulness mm. is, is something that's becoming bigger and bigger. And I I presume it's linked to meditation. But mm. yeah, you know, I guess you'll tell me it's more than that. But one thing I find, every time I try and do mindfulness, I get distracted. Yeah, you know, I start thinking about the next story I have to write or the next interview I have to do. Getting out of my normal mind into what you guys call mindfulness is a really big challenge. I think a lot of people listening to this could be in the same boat. So explain to us what mindfulness is and tell us how we can get it.
3: (laughs) How do I find it? Where do I get it? Uh, Hmm. So mindfulness is a particular mental state. So if you think of your mental state as being like a spectrum and mindfulness as being uh, one end of it, as where you are the most intentional, the most conscious, and the most present. Let's say the other end of it is total unconsciousness. Mm. And, you know, that could be through a positive experience such as sleeping, Mm. um, where where you're sort of semi-conscious, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, But you could also induce unconsciousness through uh, anesthetic or alcohol or drugs, whatever it is. Mm. So let's just think of our mental state as being a spectrum with two ends. And mindfulness is up, let's just say to the right of that spectrum, so the higher end of the spectrum. And what it involves is a state of non-judgment. So where you're focusing your awareness entirely on the present. So basically you are immersed in the present moment, in whatever is in front of you, in what you can see, what you can smell, what you can taste, what you can touch, what you can hear. And you become, it's almost like time slows down, your your thoughts slow down, and you are completely absorbed in the present moment. And, and so when we achieve that state of presence, that present moment then becomes more alive, more enriched, and more vivid for us.
1: And, and is it, like, do you actually find over time you're able to take stuff out of your mind that might be bothering you. You might be worried about a relationship or someone who you love. And that sort of. And so cause I know that the starting point I know, for meditation as well as I guess mindfulness is, is to concentrate on your breathing. So is, is that right, first of all? And secondly, why is that a good starting point to get to a mindful state?
3: Okay, so with meditation, meditation is focused time in silence and generally with our eyes. Closed. You can be with your eyes open, but so so meditation would be a, a type of mindfulness, I guess. So if mm. you think of like mindfulness as being the umbrella yeah. of non-judgmental awareness in the present, and meditation is a really focused, extreme type of meditation, a, a, a type of mindfulness. And so, if you're saying, how can we achieve mindfulness? Is that your question?
1: Yep, yep. That's what yeah. I want. How I'm can we, come to you? How forward? can
3: we achieve? Yeah, so there, oh yeah, so can it, can we come to a time where all of those things start to slow down? And the way I would liken it is that when people start to say, I tried to meditate or I tried mindfulness and I'm, I'm no good at it, or mm. my, my mind just kept going, I would say that is an entirely appropriate response because it's almost like trying to train a puppy or a toddler mm. because our brains are not accustomed to being completely immersed in the present moment. And, and why it's being used now by CEOs is because the one thing to master – if you want to be a high performer in any field, the one thing that we need to master is extreme focus. The last thing you want to be able to – want to be doing is being completely distracted in whatever role you're in. Mm-hmm. And so – um, why we're not good at it is that we're not actually built for it. We're not conditioned to be immersed in the present moment. It actually, it's like martial arts, right? You know, it's like karate kids. It takes time and we need to become, uh, masters at the art of focus. And so when we begin, we are a little bit like toddlers. And so our minds are running everywhere and our thoughts are going everywhere because that's how we've been conditioned. So over the last however many decades, we have told our minds that it is okay to dart from one place to another. Mm. And what that creates is a sense of reactivity. So in our lives, I'm just reacting to this, uh, putting out spot fires everywhere, and your attention just goes around like a puppy. When you bring mindfulness in, you become more intentional rather than reactive. And so you are teaching your mind to, to have a longer gap between cause and effect or action and response. Sounds, so a, bit like, sounds
1: a bit like stoicism in, in many ways.
3: It is. I, I think stoicism is, you know, I'm feeling this thing, but I'm going to carry on without demonstrating how it's affecting me. But, mm. yeah, definitely resilience. Definitely resilience and mindfulness are linked. I would just call it opening or widening the gap between something happening to you and you responding to it. So I'll give you an example just using the the one that you raised with relationships. Mm. Without mindfulness, someone might say something that triggers us or annoys us and then we just might snap back and say something. The first thing that comes to mind Mm. without giving it much thought. With mindfulness, if we start to practice that, someone says something that triggers me. Because I've been practicing the the focus in the present moment and the non-judgmental awareness, I might just be curious about what they've said and I might ask them a question back to explain or explore what mm. they've just said rather than immediately reacting and jumping on what they've said. So it brings a different quality to our life and not only just focus there there are so many studies now that report the benefits of mindfulness. It does it, it, if there was a pill to simulate the benefits of my book. every doctor would be prescribing it. It reduces our stress, it boosts our memory, improves our focus, reduces emotional reactivity, increases cognitive flexibility and heightens relationship satisfaction. I mean, mm. <laughs> could you get anything better? Ah. Um,
1: and, 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 and so you're also implying that it has a positive physical regenerative effect as well.
3: Yes, because I – well, this is where – Dad And I think you said earlier, how did dad feel about me going to the Earth Institute? Mm. You would be surprised at his heart, uh, Dr. Ross Walker is very much a hippie so he he is right into all of these practices and what this, this is where he got into preventative but hang on, cardiology hang on hang
1: on but the people who are hippies vote labor and your father is not a great supporter <laughs> a, of the labor party you know a very that.
3: conservative hippie it's hidden it's hidden quite deep down now when i say hippie he's quite he's, no okay let's let's rephrase it he's very progressive so he's actually been meditating for 30 or 40 years. He mm. was meditating when I was young, when I was a child, when I was growing up. So I think he could see the benefits because it's this beautiful blend of Eastern and Western approaches. So in the, the, the Orient, in the, the, as what we refer to as the East, they've been practicing mindfulness and meditation for eons. Mm. You know, it's something that we've really just picked up on in the West and, and actually now been scientifically proven, uh, in the sort of last. Ten to twenty years, where we now know. I, I look at meditation and mindfulness, and I think if you're not doing it, you are setting yourself up for stress and failure.
1: It's a really good um, uh, USP to get people interested in it, uh, Ali. Mm-hmm. Now, now let's get out of mindfulness. I think you really built the great case for that. And I'm going to have to work a lot harder in not being a child. That was the, 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 the that was the conclusion. <laughs> I, I am. I may be anyway. old, but I'm a child when it comes to focus. And I'll, I'll, but I'll, you know what?
3: If you want some easy ways to do it yep. um, I sure have do have some anchors anchors through your day the first one is to not look at your phone as soon as you wake up in the morning so we've got this opportunity this opportunity for mindfulness
1: hang on, on I've got look at the Dow Jones and the whole world wants me to be, <laughs> to be able to look, making them feel okay or making them feel even you know well, yeah. I'll try stopping from. Okay, so this is the cell. first thing okay. we're going
3: to we're going to start off by saying you determine your signal, not the Dow Jones. Okay. So you're going to work on creating your own internal signal. It might be, and I'm just saying eight minutes, okay. and then you can look at your phone. Okay. Have five to eight minutes in the morning of just deep breathing in bed. So that's your first anchor. Yep. On waking, and then you can do things like when you're in the shower, be entirely in the shower don't be in the meeting that you've got in an hour don't be in tomorrow's interview don't be in uh saturday night party just be in the shower feel the water on your back when you're eating a meal just taste the food
1: and and now as i'm listening to you i know there is one time in my life when i I reckon i'm mindful and that's when i go for a swim because i'm i'm really related to dolphins and i you know yeah, you know, if if the world is really pissing me off, if I can dive into a pool anywhere, I'm instantly you know somewhere else.
3: Okay, so that's I would say that you have an association between swimming and unwinding and relaxation. Mm. So you have now associated mindfulness with that experience, which mm. is fantastic. And a lot of people have that have that feedback to me i've had i have a friend who's extremely animated he's also a ceo and he said to me you know i never understood you carrying on about mindfulness until i went snowboarding recently Mm. and i did not think the whole way down the hill the whole way down the mountain and i was completely in the moment and i really got it now my response to that is don't just wait until you're swimming don't just wait until you're snowboarding to feel like that you can bring that quality of awareness to anything you do. You can be cleaning your teeth and feel like that. Mm. That's what mindfulness offers us. So don't wait to go swimming. Like I would say bring swimming to every single moment. Mm. And it is. it does take time. It takes patience and training. But you can actually achieve that quality of awareness when you are looking at the Dow Jones.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny, Ali. I love probably more than anything in the world, apart from my loved ones, um, <laughs> riding a surfboard. But I hate riding surfboards with other people because mm. they, they all want to drop in. It's competition. You know, I don't want that crap. You know, so it takes you out of the moment. Yeah, it's right. And, yeah. and I, I, look, I can be aggressive. You know, I played rugby league. I can fight if I have to, but I don't want to do that when I'm in the water. I just want to catch a wave, have up people, telling you to f off and all that sort of stuff. That's the last thing I want in something that mm. I feel really, really. Good about so yeah, you've actually been quite valuable here, Ali. As, <laughs> as as Ross predicted, yeah. <laughs> now come on, you've been fantastic. what well, Let's finish up on this personality test that you made me do. Let's go. Okay, so so um, is it related to you know to everything you do that you need to to know what you know the people you're dealing with, what they're like? Is that an obvious starting can point? Be-
3: It can be used in a number of different settings. So to start with, it can help you understand your partner and loved ones better. After my workshops and and keynotes, people come up to me and say, oh, you've just given me so much insight into my child Mm. or you've given me so much insight into my father and I understand now why he's like he is. Mm. But it can also help you hire people. It can help you with mediation or mediating disputes. And it can actually bring a different quality of awareness to things like uh, learning and training at work, diversity in teams, leadership, culture, all that kind of thing. So it can be applied in lots of different settings. And what we're talking about is I've designed a few different personality assessments. And this one that we're talking about is particularly called Allity Connect. So my company is called Allity and this assessment that you've just taken hmm. is the connection assessment that identifies how you are when you're in a group of people, whether that is a one-on-one relationship or a team at work.
1: But Ali, do you occasionally get disappointments? Like, like you said to me, you are a foundation connector. Well, I felt good about that. I don't know whether that's good or not, but it sounds good. And when I read it, mm-hmm. it says you get things done, you're activated, you're practical. Your challenge is having the courage to go your own way, which I think is fair. You can be independent and loved at the same time. And then mm-hmm. you want to be a dawn connector. So explain you know, the way I am and the way I want to be. Sure. So- and be right, please. <laughs>
3: When we first design well, when I first designed the connection type, it just identified your type right here, right now, as you are. And what I was discovering in the feedback, so approximately five thousand people have taken this assessment now. And what I was discovering is that people were saying, Well, yes, that is me. You are describing me. I wish I was blah blah. I wish I was this or I I would like to become more X. And so then I realized, Oh, there is actually a difference between someone's current connection type and potentially their preference for how they'd like to connect with other people. You know, someone saying, well, I am like this in relationships or in my work team,
0: Mm.
3: but what I'd really love to be like is this. And so what we've discovered with you, Peter, is that you're coming up as a foundation type, which is a high frequency, low intensity connector. Now, I'll just quickly explain what that means, is that... In terms of the measures for me, looking at your personality and how you connect, there's two key measures. One is frequency and one is intensity. So with frequency, I look at how often do you like to be around other people? Mm -hmm. When you're talking with other people, how often do you like to speak and how quickly do you speak? So basically, how often do you like to be physically proximate to someone else? And that's kind of correlated with the introversion, extroversion Mm -hmm. idea and the big five personality traits. So in your results, you would be described as a high frequency connector. So you like a lot of human connection. Yep. So people who are low frequency are people who pr- actually prefer to be in their own inner world, and they get their connection in a, a different way. They might get their connection through cooking, yeah. music.
0: Are they
1: high singing. intensity as a consequence?
3: It wouldn't it doesn't it, it? depends. You can be low frequency, high intensity, or yeah. low frequency, low intensity. Okay. And so think of it. Uh, I'll, I'll the one description that I use a lot is I call it your $100 of connection money so we all wake up in the morning and in order to achieve our or earn our $100 of connection money which is what's going to make us feel good at the end of the day in terms of our relationships, mm-hmm. we need to earn that money and we all earn it in a different way so for you knowing that you're high frequency you will earn your money through a lot of human connection mm. but if someone's low frequency they'll be drained by that human connection yeah. it will cost them money
0: yeah. okay. so
3: you need to you'll you'll see a barista and have a little chat when yeah. you're getting a coffee that's yeah. five dollars for you yeah.
0: so understand. you
3: probably end up with a lot of money at the end of the day so but your low intensity which means so intensity measures what kind of conversations you like to have mm. how personal you like deep. to be i don't
1: i don't go deep
3: no, so that means you're low intensity.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's you me. are. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. You're you're someone who likes to keep it light. You want to talk about finances. Yeah. You want to be very, very yeah. straight. Well, I'm happy up. to help people, to but I don't
1: want to lose any sleep over it. That's for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that that's why you're coming up as a foundation type. So people who are foundation types, you're you're strong, powerful, reliable, steadfast. So you make people feel safe. Mm. Like someone would look at you and think you've got it covered. You've got the situation under control, mm. and you're trustworthy and vigilant now the funny thing about a foundation type is that you believe there's usually a best way to get things done but it's often your way
0: yeah I know.
1: Yeah. in fact more and more, more, and more often says to me i don't need you to tell me what i should do just find out what's wrong with me and you know try to help me as opposed <laughs> to talk to me yeah, yeah, talk yeah, yeah. to me Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but, but so the- does it say that i want to be something better a dawn connector is a dawn connector more sensitive so than- i wouldn't
3: call it better it's just very different so so what you're coming up what's really interesting is that for some people there's not much disparity at all they yeah. might say yep i'm coming up as a foundation type and i want to be a foundation yeah. type, so everything is good but for you what's interesting is that you're actually coming up mm. as high intensity mm. so your preference for connection is that you'd like to be higher intensity and mid frequency so what that's telling me is that you like less light sort of light touch superficial Mm. interaction and more intense connection with people you'd like to talk to people which I've got to say is consistent over the life course Mm. so as people get a bit older they're probably their their preferences for connection might change a little bit Um, but what you're telling me is that you'd like to focus more on building capacity in others now rather than always being the person that takes control and tells people what to do. What yeah. you're trying to do now, you're moved into a different phase. What these results tell me is that you are now more interested in coaching and building capacity for others rather than being the go-to person.
1: I'm sounding like a really great guy. I? I, I like myself. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. One of my favourite lines in all movies of all times uh, was when Jack Nicholson said, Nicholson said you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. And I, I think in many ways as a young person, I didn't want to tell people stuff, you know. It was harder mm. to do it. I wanted, didn't make them feel bad about themselves. But, but now as you get older, you still, you know, I am sort of saying to some people, look, I know they don't want to hear this, but you really do need it if you want to go to the next level, if you want to help yourself. It's funny. You, Ali, I, I reckon you're on the money here. I
3: think, so this could be really helpful for your leadership, actually. Yeah. So the way that you would lead people is very different now. Your role is to more see the highest potential in someone else mm. and say things like, well, why don't you tell me what you would do rather than say 10, 20 years ago, you may have said this is what you should do? Correct. Yeah. I, so it's I'm, a very different approach.
1: Yeah. I'm becoming most about Now, look, I, I know I've gone longer than I usually do, but I've got to say, you've been unusual, not unusual, you've been fantastically interesting. <laughs> I think lots of people <laughs> listening you. to this, a lot of people listeners would see the real value in thinking about things like mindfulness and knowing themselves. So, if people want to know more, what's the best way of getting through to Ality, great name too.
3: Yeah, so it's alitylife.com is the website that will link you to all the personality assessments. So that's uh ality, A-L-I-T-Y,
1: Ali, that was a fantastic experience. I'm really glad we did this. I know we've met socially on many occasions, but I've never really got to know what you're doing and I think a lot of people listening to this would find that there's a lot of value in what you're doing. Thanks for joining us on the program.
3: Thanks, Peter. I had fun.
1: And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested in uh, making some money uh, aside from buying, join the rich club. Think about the Switzer Report, SwitzerReport.com.au. That's when we've got some really good stock tips, which have been doing, been doing very well over recent times. Britain time. Britain time. <laughs>